Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I am your host, Marsha Van Weinsberg. I'm a business coach, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, When She Stopped Asking Why. On this podcast, we will use the tips, tools, and strategies used by myself and our speakers to break through and overcome the challenges in our lives. When we take radical responsibility of our choices, create boundaries, grow our courage and practice self-care and letting go of what isn't ours to control, we can completely change our stories. When we take full ownership of our stories, we take back our personal power and this allows us to impact, serve and support others by showing them that they are not alone and helping them find freedom from their stories. When you own your choices, you truly own your life. Let's dive in. We are taking a quick break to tell you that it is finally here. I'm so excited to announce the Rising Leaders Collective Membership is now open. Why Rising Leaders? Because we all have a leader inside of us who is screaming to rise. The leader who is ready for more growth, connection, expansion, and possibilities. This will include bi-weekly support as you learn to own and stand on your story in a supportive, collaborative space. Want to become an author, podcaster, or business owner by learning how to share your story authentically? Then this is the space for you. You do not want to miss out. There are some incredible promotions for the first 10 people who join. Sign up at the link in the show notes. I am so excited to support you and bring this vision to life. Now back to the show. Welcome to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. And today is a special episode. We are connecting with Jen Foote. Jen is an addiction and recovery specialist, podcast host of Naturally High, co-author of The Epiphany Project, master practitioner and trainer of NLP and clinical hypnotherapy and life and success coaching. Wow. So much that she is here doing in this world. And I met Jen through her daughter, Rachel Joy, who has been one of the most impactful coaches I've ever worked with. And I am just so grateful for this connection. So I want to tell you a little bit about Jen as before we dive into this incredible episode. Jen is the founder of the Recovery Concierge, a premier mental health concierge boutique, co-author of the Epiphany Project and host of the Naturally High podcast and master practitioner and trainer of NLP. Jen uses her 15 years experience as a certified addiction and trauma recovery specialist to give clients of the recovery concierge the best chance for sustainable recovery and enhanced quality of life. She knows that all behavior has purpose and substance abuse is not about drugs or alcohol, but rather the root cause that are beneath those compulsions are all part of the emotional response caused by past trauma. The customized concierge support that Jen and TRC provide allows clients to move from surviving to thriving with a 97% success rate. This is a very powerful conversation, and I am so grateful for everything that she shared with us in this episode. We talked all about how you are the common denominator in all areas of your life. And this is where, when you take, learn how to take radical responsibility, not from a place of blame, but from a place of taking back your own personal power is when we can create change. We talked all about healing generational trauma and how shame is truly universal. 
There's a mindset or a shift that comes when we are chosen for this kind of work. And this is exactly what Jen is here doing. We are all in some kind of recovery in something in our lives. We talked about the concepts of vulnerability, surrendering, the power of self-care, and listening to what we need so we can give back to ourselves in order to give to others. This is such a very... This episode hits home for me, and I'm so grateful for the work that she's doing and for the time that she gives and the knowledge and value that she gives during this episode. Welcome to the show today, Jen. I'm so thrilled to have you here. And I'm thrilled to be here with you, Marsha. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you being able to let me lend my voice. Absolutely. Your voice is so important and necessary and needed. And I think especially at a time like this. So before we start, can you just tell everyone where you're from? Absolutely. So I live in Toronto. Um, I was born in London, England and raised in Toronto. And I um, have a family, a grown family, a newly grandmother as well. I have an 18 month old grandson. And yes, that's what I do. This is my second career. I'm in the mental health and addiction space and trauma recovery. And that in itself, we're going to definitely unpack that. When I read through your comments on your form, it just hit me because it's like, this is where the language we speak, very similar language, but it's up to each of us to take radical responsibility in our life. Otherwise we outsource our happiness and well-being to others. I love that sentence. I mean, everything I talk about is radical responsibility. So I want to know what are your thoughts on what that phrase means? Well, we kind of focus on acceptance, right? A lot of times, like, you know, we have to accept and especially in the addiction recovery community in particular. And that, that is true. But yet I had accepted that maybe my life was different in my formative years, but I was having trouble with responsibility because really I was an innocent victim of my circumstances. And so, there was good reason why I was angry. There was good reason why I was rebellious and hurting. And yet I couldn't really figure out that it was ultimately me who had to change this, not someone else. It took me a while to do that. Mm-hmm. It's only through trial and error and a real tenacity <laughs> to keep at it because I'm tenacious in spirit and I want to make sure I'm going to get what I want for better or worse. And I kept at it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I love, thank you for saying that because so many times people think radical responsibility is like pointing fingers. It's, it's their fault. There's a lot of anger that's involved. And I always like to just look at it, that it's like me taking responsibility for me and I can't control my circumstances, but I can control how I react to my circumstances. But if we're holding on to a lot of anger, that's hard to do. Yeah. And I think that comes to one of my favorite lines. And I wrote a chapter in, in a book where a co-author called the epiphanies project, but is you are the common denominator in your life. I am the common denominator in my life. Like, you know, people look for all sorts of cures in all the wrong places, whatever it may be, whether it's a new relationship, um, you know, substances, geographical locations, right? Like changing careers, whatever it may be. And, and yet we follow ourselves wherever we go. Mm-hmm. And until we really understand that, really understand that, <laughs> you're probably going to get a similar result that you may have a few good months, and you feel like you're flying a bit high, but then you're plummet again. And you're wondering like, wow, what's really going on here, right? And and it's the same pattern. And it's frustrating. It's really, really frustrating. But change can happen quickly, instantly, or it can be slower for some people. Sometimes they just need to get 
awakened with that same two by four over the head over and over and over again. And I do believe wholeheartedly that our lessons are are repeated. They're given to us in different messages with different people and different circumstances over and over again until we really understand that, you know, maybe we need to put a boundary here or maybe we need to stop hurting ourselves and start loving ourselves or whatever that may be for someone. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you unpacking that. Have you always been working in this field in this capacity? No. No. So I started in this field um, at a very young age, at the age of four, with lived experience. And my first adversity in life was when my sister died. I was, she was a baby. I was four years old. I had an older brother. And what happened is I remember that day exactly. And no one talked about it. That was my takeaway from that. I remember the day exactly what happened. I don't remember absolutely what happened for the next two years after. I must have just kind of blanked out. But my takeaway from that was this was not a safe thing for us to talk about with my parents. And I had this like grief and hole in my heart. I thought maybe it's something I did. I wasn't even sure. And so that was my first hit with adversity. And then by the time I was six to eight years old, I had an older brother who was six years older and sexual abuse started. And, and it carried on for years till I was 12. And so for me, it was my lived experience that brought me here. And then as I did everything I was supposed to, quote unquote, in terms of I had a substance issue, and I surely did, there's no question I had a substance <laughs> issue, but I was clean at the age of 33 for seven years and really, really unwell because no one knew what trauma was in the early 90s. Trauma is a new, like it's only being diagnosed in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostical Statistical Manual, as of 2020. That's last year. That's insane. It is insane. I'm so sorry. That is absolutely insane. So people didn't know what it was. They kind of knew that these things went on. They've been going on for hundreds of years, but what they don't understand is how it impacts someone's healing. And talking about trauma in particular can actually be counterproductive. It can actually exasperate people's symptoms and pathology in terms of how they heal, which was my situation. I used to go to a therapist, try and talk about it, come out and like, I needed to get high. Like it was just too much. I was doing the wrong thing. So at a very bottom in my life, I was about seven years in, in recovery. And I thought there's got to be a different way. Mm-hmm. It just has to be a different way. And nobody was kind of... You know, everything looked well on the outside. I had three kids. I had a career in a family business, insurance and financial services. I had a husband who was doting. I had all the things, but yet inside I wanted to feel like I wanted to die. I really did. I had an emotional bottom. I just felt I I could not look in the mirror and look at myself. That's how I hated myself so much. Full of shame, frozen in my body. Like I couldn't even move. It took many years to defrost and thaw out. And so I came to it with so much lived experience and I fought becoming a therapist. I thought, you know, get everybody who gets into recovery wants to be in recovery or I mean, like a, a counselor or a recovery coach or some sort of thing and, and helping give back, which is noble. But I thought, fought that for years and eventually I thought, okay, I'll try it. And then I just love learning. But what really, I followed a different path. My path was I fell in love with Kundalini yoga and mm-hmm. it was by accident. In fact, I took Rachel, my daughter, who I know that you know, yes, to the first class 
And uh, I said, come on, we're going to your yoga class. And this is funny because it was back in probably um, about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was about a teen, she was a young girl, a young teenager. I said, come on, we're going to go to this yoga class. She came with me. We drove like about 45 minutes outside of Toronto. And who was there was Mastin Kip. <gasps> and also Tommy Rosen from Recovery 2.0 was leading the class. Come so we had on. We thought we were just going to this lecture about, you know, you know, feeling good, recovery, whatever, and yoga. So she came with me and we walked out. Oh my God, I think it was six o'clock. And I think we walked out five hours later around 11, 1130. And I thought, oh my God, I was so high naturally. And that's what started feeling naturally high, that this was something that could make me feel better instantly instantly and it was you know obviously a lot of kundalini is about breath work um bring in the energy from the base of the spine up to the top then working with the chakras moving stagnant energy through the body and it's one of many tools people can do but it suddenly made me recognize that there was so much more out there than this hard painful you know pathology of looking at yourself in such a horrible like shameful way and so i just you know, then the lived experience was with my children because now I was awake. Mm-hmm. I was able to see what was going on for them. And I remember not really wanting to do this for myself, but thought, if I don't do this, we are going to repeat another generation of this. Mm-hmm. And so I did it for them and stayed for me. And interestingly enough, that's what took us on like a two and a half year journey with my eldest. Um, we went into the fields of Utah and, you know, the, the community of the therapeutic landscape. And it was a real learning curve for me. And interestingly enough, there was nothing in Canada. No. So we went in and out of emerge, in and out of emerge, therapist to therapist, people telling us how high risk this kid was. And then suddenly we, I navigated in an underground railroad because nobody talked about this because it's so shameful into the US. And it was there that there were clinical expertise matched to the nuances of what my kids needed. And so that started a whole, you know, a new awakening of what could be mm-hmm. and wasn't in Toronto. And still is very, still like I'm a, a sort of a lone ranger in the work that I do here because people still want to do one-to-one trading time for money in front of a therapist instead of client or family-centric care where everybody, because everybody's impacted by this. Everybody's impacted by this. And so we ended up, it kind of found me, not I found it, not the other way around. I feel like I was really chosen for this work because it's hard work. It really is hard work. But I had a lot of success in it. And I think it would never be what it is if it wasn't for my own lived experience. Wow. Honestly, just wow. So many things that you have said. And I deep, deep heartedly believe like the stories that we live, we can choose to do something good with them. And what you're doing is taking that experience and making a difference in so many families' lives, which started in your own. So I just first off, I just want to thank you and honor you for that, because I think it is incredibly important and hard work. And for somebody who hasn't lived it, I think I just want to, I don't know how to paint the picture here, but for somebody who hasn't lived it, 
sometimes they are the people that have a lot of advice, a lot of, a lot of advice of what to do. And we, we, we went through um, tremendous amounts of criticism with how to handle our situation when we were in that. But again, we were living and walking it. I would love for you to just unpack how it can impact the whole family. It just it really paint that picture because there's also, um, it's not isolated. Everybody's lives are affected in when we're dealing with addiction. Well, like myself, um, the best analogy I can give is that in, um, they teach this in rehab that think of a mobile and you move the mobile. One person is one of the figures in the mobile. And when somebody moves Mm -hmm. out of into a certain space, the whole mobile moves with. So, you know, one of the things that was not obvious to me, even though I had lived it in my life was I was a young child who witnessed frontline seats in the own chaos of my childhood with ambulance and please come to the door, my brother ODing, my mom strung out on value, my dad, the nice, we're hardworking guy. And I was this like little kid who just watched everything and took it in. Nobody's talking because in the 60s, 70s, I was grew up in the adage where children should be seen and not heard. Nobody spoke about anything. It was yep. really, you didn't sit down with kids. So for me, I had that seat. But what I recognized later, and it came out years later with my own children, that the impact one of my children had on our family, which was consuming all of our time, as well as what they witnessed. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge absence, huge amount of resources going to that one child and later others became like something that impacted them significantly. So on when you do assessments, there's, there's kind of all these different DSM diagnostics and having someone in your family who is going through something severe can impact another child severely. Even going away to treatment can impact the child, even if it's in their best interest. Mm -hmm. So there was a bit of a learning curve there as well, which we didn't find out initially. We found out much later, even though we were including the other kids in family therapy. So it does affect everybody because, you know, we're just trying to adapt to the crisis at hand continuously. And those kids know that mom and dad are kind of absent or their resources are going there or their time or energy. And they're hurting too because it's their, their sibling, right? Yes. And so it, it does impact them. 100%. I, I appreciate you sharing that and saying that. Now, as you are, we talk about like unpacking that trauma and inner child healing. And what, what does it look like when you are stepping into a space of an intervention with a family? So there's a lot of misinformation in mental health and addictions, period. Okay, so let's just start there. Thank you for there's saying a, that. Yeah, there's a lot of misinformation around it. Um, there's a lot of lack of professional credibility, sometimes in a certain space, um, meaning without adequate training. But mental health is health, first of all, because you talked about the stigma of that, right? When you, when you mentioned your own family. And we kind of treat, we kind of, we actually do treat health in silos symptomatically right but we're not asking the right questions how many people go to a hospital for a panic attack and then wonder why that they, they clear fully from a cardiac issue because the issues are in our tissues so you've probably heard that expression before yes 
So basically for me, what I look at is we can always escalate, but if we start with too fast, too hard, we've ruined our chances because wow. we're trying to build rapport here with someone or we're, we're trying to, you know, be compassionate. The old way was to be hardcore, get everyone in a room, you know, sort of ambush them and everybody has their letters of how this is impacting them and give them an ultimatum. Well, guess what? If they don't want to go because they, they really are not able to comprehend fully because they're working with an addicted brain, for example, it's really, it, it can be detrimental to the relationship. So for me, we start with what we call an invitational intervention, where there's full disclosure about everything we're doing. And we invite that person to come and learn more about how the family's feeling. And, you know, there can be resistance along the way, and that's fine. We still meet. We still, we're very transparent. And then eventually we will have to escalate from an invitational to a non-invitational if that is the case but at least we've tried to build rapport and we and we're not going too hard too fast which i see a lot of people overdo right because then the relationship's damaged you can't work with people when there's no relationship mm -hmm. that people are scared and people panic and they say the wrong things and they they don't know how to communicate effectively because their their fears are running everything that's their mode of operation so it sometimes people overshoot i think it's really really critical to slow down and listen you want to take it away from the addicted person quote unquote or the person who's suffering so that they're not the center of attention to the family system because the person who's suffering could just be the barometer of the family emotionally. Maybe nobody's talking about anything. Maybe everybody's talking about anything. It just depends. But they're the more sensitive, the one who, who, who's feeling everything, which is one of the reasons why they have to adjust and adapt the way they do by using. Nobody's just using for the hell of it. Very few people use just because it's fun. They think they, they, they probably convince themselves that's why, but they're using because they really can't cope. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you. No, that, that really helps to unpack that. I appreciate that. Um, in this time where we've kind of still coming through the end of a pandemic, however you want to, how have you seen that affect addiction, mental health? I mean, I have ideas, but I would just love to know from somebody who actually is in the field. I have a number of clients that I work with who have dealt with addiction in their, with their marriage and spouses and, and one of the things that continually comes up is how frustrated they are that there's this constant meme. Like I say, meme of, you know, I have to drink to cope. I have to do because of how hard the pandemic has been. And it's just been an interesting to see that and hear that. And I would just love to know what this time has done to mental health and addiction. Well, I think. It, there's not a person alive who hasn't been affected by it, right? Like, let's just get it right. that straight. So for, like, I think even children, young children can see how quickly the world can change. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they had that concept before. So I call the pandemic the tipping point. Like, if people were on the edge, they're definitely tipped over the edge by the time they've experienced a pandemic. And that could be people for just plain anxiety, yep. not even substance abusers, right? Mm -hmm. Um like I, I've witnessed that within my own friends. There are people that their fears are so great, like they're, the way they're managing doesn't even make sense anymore. 
Um, so yes, we know that alcohol consumption rates went up like astronomically in the early days and continue. I don't know what the numbers are now because they, they really, but alcohol sales were up. Mm -hmm. And I think that would probably be worldwide because first of all, people had more flexibility to drink and hide where they had to physically be present in an office before that doesn't matter anymore. And during a time when you're working from home, right? So people who could, who were kind of struggling could drink more. Um, so that's part of it. But I think the real issue is people who do anything, we all find our way of coping, right? In a behavioral manner, like whether it's too much chocolate cake or I'm going for the next degree or power or recognition or validation or a new relationship or sex or alcohol or substances, people are looking for a way out. And unless you understand that anything outside of yourself is like, first of all, you're chasing carrots. As long as you're chasing carrots, you're chasing carrots, no matter what it is, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't really matter. So the work really is, is to understand yourself enough. And it takes time to get to a point to recognize that there's nothing that's going to fill that gap, that hole that aches within us, which is our soul searching for real meaning. And so there's nothing that's going to really fill that. And I think, and that's where it comes back to the common denominator in us. We keep trying different things, all of us, that's normal. And we're wired for comfort and we're going to really try to take the easy route because humans are wired for comfort. There's no question. But at the same time, eventually what I see with people, including myself, I think I've been there, is that the pain of staying the same becomes harder than taking the leap into the unknown. And so eventually that person may jump or some people just bang their heads against the brick wall and will go down fighting and screaming mm -hmm. to their own detriment and those around them. Yeah. I, I think that is an incredible explanation because it like, it really is almost that turning point where it's like, I can't, the pain of staying here for one second longer is just greater than anything else. Yeah. And it's trend. That's what transition is, right? It's a painful, painful place. You're not happy where you were. You're terrified to take the leap into the unknown, but yet really at that stage, you have nothing to lose because you've only got everything to gain at that point. Right. Yeah. You just have to believe that and know, like at least know that there's possibilities for other things outside of where you are right now. And it's just, you know, surrounding yourself, hopefully with the people who can help to create those changes. As I love how you said, like we are all in recovery in some way, shape or form. And I could, I could not agree more. Like, I honestly, I think that that is a case of whatever the vice or whatever we choose, because we have, we all, even people who have incredible coping mechanisms. We all have moments where it's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to feel this. I don't, it's, it's an awful feeling. I don't want to sit in it. I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to push it away and avoid it. And it's, I don't know. It's just, I think that that's, we are all in recovery of something. How do you know or recognize that something is a problem? Well, typically there's usually, you're probably the last to know, <laughs> typically, <laughs> if it's a real problem <laughs> yep. and somebody's in denial because that's a big part of the problem itself. How do you know it's a problem? I think you know it's a problem when it doesn't work anymore, really. Whatever you're hoping to gain from 
that lets you substance in particular, it just is very short lived. And that's where the cognitive dissonance is. Like people drink alcohol feeling that this will make me feel better. And it does for 20 minutes, 30 minutes max. But so then they say, okay, well, I'll have another drink. But what happens is that they're trying to achieve that baseline of feeling good from that first drink. And it never matches up, which is why people keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. And every time they take a drink, their baseline goes down lower and lower and lower and lower. And they're going and they're, and then they end up feeling ill from it. Mm -hmm. And so the whole idea of what you were looking for in that first drink is a real, I say it's a cognitive dissonance. There's there's a difference between what you thought was going to happen and what really did happen right? Mm -hmm. And so then it becomes a cost benefit analysis question. Is this worth it? Like, what's it costing me to do this? Am I getting more benefit from it or more? Or is it taken away from me more? Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think people, you know, they don't go through that consciously. So it's a process to get there. But I think that's really when a problem and also they're very much in denial. You know, there's an acronym, don't even know I am lying. Right? <laughs> You know, and that's really part of it. Like when you're so, um, when you're struggling and you're dousing your brain with poisons, um, and your nervous system with poisons, you know, you're not going to have an accurate picture of what really is going on for you. What, that, that is so, don't even know I'm lying. So, so important and so bang on, honestly. And it just to give it and paint that picture of what that time and that space, that energy is like and how that can affect so many people. So I thank you for sharing that as you're diving into this more and more, I can relate in so many ways of what you're talking about, primarily because I grew up in the seventies and like, we did not, we just didn't talk about anything, like nothing. Like we had some really traumatic things happen. It was like, you just suck it up and move on. And that was very much burrowed into us. And so it, I feel like it's interesting because I feel like sometimes there's, we spend our life like unlearning things that we I thought. say the same, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, unlearning, right? Like just unlearning. And I know when I first love my parents, so if this ever comes out, but when I first started doing what I'm doing now and speaking openly, it was very much frowned upon by a majority of my family majority. Cause they were like, we no, 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 no. We don't talk about things. We don't do that. You don't air your dirty laundry. You don't, I can say it's been the most freeing experience ever to come to this, like to be able to share and to be able to make an impact and it changes the story of shame, right? It changes mm -hmm. that story of shame. So can you just explain to people who are listening, like what shame is and how it can affect us in our lives. Absolutely. So firstly, I just want to touch on the part that you said about your family. So this is never about blame. No. It's never about blame. It's about learning, as you said, unlearning and relearning, right? It's just about finding out, you know, like emotions were not valued in those days. They never were. It was like, pull yourself together. Don't be so sensitive, da, 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 whatever that thing. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, don't cry, pull yourself together. And so that's just what they learned from the previous generation, which is why this is intergenerational and it's about healing intergenerational trauma. So not number one, but shame is universal. And this is the whole thing that's, you know, people don't know that if I think I'm the only one who feels not enough in whatever capacity, or I can't 
and I hate myself or I'm shooting on myself or must on myself, then I think that you're perfect. I put you to up to a standard that's idealistic and I'm holding myself to a standard that's not even realistic. So shame is really uni universal. We all suffer from it at times. We all feel not enough at times. And we walk around with this freaking veneer that we're all good and everything's great and the whole thing. And so I think, you know, the veneers do crack at some point and sometimes it may take a circumstance or an event or whatever it may be, or just maybe a longing mm -hmm. to really kind of not be contained and be who you really want to be, which is more of your authentic true self, right? Mm -hmm. Like we grow up being who we think we need to be until we claim ourselves back. So I think that's a, that's a big part of it. But um, yeah, if we recognize that we're more alike than different, which I believe we are, and we all think we're so terminally unique. I suffered from that syndrome definitely when I was younger. <laughs> no, you don't know my life. So if you don't know my life, you know, I can you I'm different than you. So the rules are different for me than you. <laughs> of course. Yeah, but the truth is we are more alike than different. Our just our plots and our characters are different, but our our feelings, our pain, our longings, our desires, our heartache mm -hmm. is all the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that is such a beautiful explanation. And yes, I think it's, um, Brene Brown says that the number one thing humans want is connection. They just want to feel like they belong. They want to feel like they belong, but it's interesting because we can't get there unless we can embrace some kind of vulnerability and be open and real. And that in itself is so scary for some people, but as soon as you do it, then it can become um, such a weight off. And I know when I first started to read about vulnerability and I mean, I was, I grew up as the fighter, right? The fighter that I'm just going to take care of all of it. I was an adult long before I needed to be. And that was my personality trait, but that personality trait did not serve me when I was dealing um, with my kids. It was actually the last thing that I needed to do was continually fight the way that I was. But as I learned to shift and change that, then you start to approach things differently and recognize that, okay, so maybe I don't have to do it this way. But as I approached vulnerability, the first few times I'm like, okay, I think I understand what it is and I'm going to do it. And I start to be vulnerable, but it was with all the wrong people because I wasn't surrounding myself with people that were the right fit at the time. And then it was like, okay, this doesn't work. I should not be doing this. This is not right. Because yes, you shouldn't share all these things. But it takes time to surround yourself with the people who can support you and see you and encourage you and all of those things. So sometimes we don't always do it right to start, but that doesn't mean you don't like you abort path. You just kind of have to figure that out as you go. Well, I think interesting enough, this just came up the other day with someone, somebody who is very early into their recovery journey. We don't share when we're in the height of our storm. No. And some people do that because they think being honest or full disclosure is, is a good thing. And, and so it's getting it right size sometimes, right? So vulnerability allows us deeper connections. It allows us to really connect at a very different level than the veneer that's showing, right? And so the mask that we've got on. Um, but there's also a time for it. We don't share in the middle of a storm. We have to have some perspective on what that means for us. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it reminds me of, you know, I'm going to use a 12 step analogy and I came through 12 steps and I probably wouldn't have got well with 12 steps, but I didn't stay for the, for many different reasons over the years, but I spent a, a many decades in 12 steps. And one of the things they say, they go, they talk about surrender. When you surrender your power and it's the same with vulnerability, you're not, you have a, an act in it. You have agency in it. You don't just surrender to a higher power of your understanding and have a passive role in your life. There's still action that's required. I think it's the same with vulnerability. Like you can be vulnerable, but you have to know when too. Like there's, there's kind of a nuance around that kind of thing. You don't just lie back and say, okay, well, that's it. I'm going to now dish out everything. No. You, you know, we do that when we're hurting. We think the whole world needs to know about our problems. And so we don't know, I call it right size. We don't know how to kind of get there. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's a process. It's a trial and error process. But I feel that the best way one can really come out is to really be on the other side of it and understand themselves a little better before they share. Mm -hmm. Because you have to be prepared for a vulnerability hangover, which is usually... Like, oh my God, did I say too much, right? Like, yeah. and, then, and deal with that, which is just as, it can be just as traumatizing. Yeah, it, it is very, very real. And that is one of the things I see a lot of my clients go through where it's like, oh my gosh, I'm like, it, this is just a wave. It's, you have to figure that out. But I love how you explain that. Absolutely love how you explain that. So with the work that you do, which I honestly, I think is so incredible and so needed. How do you take care of yourself in this process? Because it's heavy work. That has got to be, it has to be heavy it work. It is heavy work. Mm -hmm. So the goal has been to try to scale my work out. And it, it's difficult because it's, first of all, I am really kind of the business. Therefore, it demands on me, right? It just takes a lot for me. I'm such an empathetic person truly because I hate suffering and suffering has been a really big part of my own life. Unfortunately, I think there's degrees of that regardless, but for every individual, but I think, you know, had a reasonable share. And so for me, I just came to it. Like when I found Kundalini yoga, I really, that was my transition. It was my turning point. It was for me, it was, giving myself reserve before I go out into the world. And that starts with me. I have a morning practice. I've had one for about 15 years. I meditate, I pray, I write, I journal. And I don't do all those things every day, but I do a variety of those different things. And it's like a way of priming myself. And what I noticed was when I first was starting Kundalini and I, and there's really a lot about breath work and movement, right? And stretching your vessel and and you know your physiology is your psychology you know that and so and vice versa so it's really integrating that but what i noticed was like i wasn't even sure if this was working when i was first doing like got into it and i remember at the three week part i went oh my god it definitely is and how as soon as i asked the question i had the evidence that it was and how i knew that was working was i was less reactive to what was going on around me i felt like Everything that was happening, like if my kids were irritating me or someone pissed me off or something didn't go well or whatever it may be or a disappointment, I felt like it was like 
it was Teflon. It just flew off. I didn't get agitated. I didn't get stuck by it. I, I just had more resilience. I was almost like I was anesthetized from what was going on, where the older me would have been agitated and stuck with it and aggravated by it. And it just sort of disappeared. It doesn't mean I don't get angry. It just doesn't stay with me in the same way. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I knew it was working and it's essential. Because, you know, if you don't kind of prime yourself for your own well-being, you become someone else's agenda. And so it's really important to know what's important to you and what you need to do to take care of yourself in order to navigate daily living. It's a rough world out there. <laughs> it's a rough world. It is. I Thank you for sharing that. I'm so glad you have your own practices that you do because I think... They're, they're incredibly important anyways. I just know that for the level and the intensity of the work that you do do that it just this must be so much more required. I, I find if I, when I find myself reacting to things like in a way that I'm like, what is wrong with you? Then I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa. You get where let's dial back. Where's the self-care missing? What am I not doing? What do I need to listen to? Because my reaction is usually my compass that something is not right within me, not the other person. A hundred percent. I agree. Couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. Now moving forward, where do you see yourself? Where do you see this? I know you have a lot of things that you want to continue to do as you grow your own business. You just started a podcast. What's the name of your podcast? naturally high. Nice. Nice. How do you like the podcasting? I like it actually. I, you know, I end up saying the same things because we come back to the same things. Like obviously the, the themes are different, mm -hmm. but the, the centralized theme is, is pretty much the same. Like we have the ability to shift our own endocrine system, our own hormonal system, and we have a pharmacy within us so we can access that stuff. Um, but too often people don't know how to take agency in their own, in their own work and healing. So it's been fun. I, I like talking actually. I'd never, because I'm not a big talker. I don't go around like, you know how some people are the big talkers and they talk about everything and they just don't shut up. I'm not one of those persons. I tend to be more quiet, mm -hmm. but I do enjoy talking about something I'm really passionate about. And I find I'm passionate about the things that I am, which is probably justice, resilience, you know, turning our adversity into resilience and really having compassion for one another's process and story and real true healing. And we don't do such a great job of that. Everybody's blaming everybody. And, um, I don't know why I'm different, but I, I just feel that way personally. Mm -hmm. I think um, you nailed something on the head that I, I've seen even more so in this last 20 months or so is the lack of compassion to understand. And you said at the beginning, this time has affected everybody in different ways. It's horrendous out there right now. Like everybody, yeah. I always say, seek to understand. I say this to my children too. Seek to understand rather than be understood. Mm -hmm. Like really like... I have perspective, you have perspective. Let's try and listen to one another. Yep. We don't have to, you know, vomit our opinions over each other. No, no. This is a very, very different time. And it requires a different level of um, self-care agency responsibility, I find. Mm -hmm. And I do, like, there's definitely 
I don't know, maybe the empath piece, but I can look at certain situations and think like, I can see how their life has been affected. I can see how their, their family has been impacted by this time, even if it hasn't affected me the same way. And I feel like we just need a little bit more of that and understanding that this time has affected a lot of us in very different ways. 100%. And so when you talk about what do I want to do now, the work I want to do is really not sustainable for me. So therefore, the work is bringing this work into the world and training other aspiring coaches, practitioners, healthcare, clinical professionals, whoever wants to do this work, and in how to do this well. And there's the mental health addiction professional component to that. And then there's the aspiring healer. And then there's people who want to go deeper and become, make it a profession. And so I'm bringing it out in parts. And so they, it just depends where someone is on their journey. But I feel like the world, the work needs to get into the world because if we don't, we become victims of the generation previously. And to me, this is all about breaking and healing intergenerational trauma. I love, I absolutely love that you said that because I think that there's a lot of us that I feel are being called to do this. And this is, it's heavy work. It is definitely heavy work. And sometimes it can be very lonely because not everybody understands or agrees with what you're doing, but you are in the process healing yourself. And then as well, working to pay that forward because you're breaking how generations have responded to different circumstances. And the, the part that I'm really passionate about, and it's not that I'm the most esteemed trained professional, is that it, there's an ethics and safety issue around this work. Mm-hmm. And people don't always have the skills to be um, a facilitator in a safe and ethical way and staying in their scope of practice. And I think that just is... It, it's probably because I'm old school and I'm older that that was kind of um, part of my upbringing to do things a certain way. Like I would never call myself something I'm not. Right. I would I would have trouble with that. Yeah. There's a lot of people who sort of blur those boundaries. And, and that's so I think there is the diligence is on the consumer to be aware of that. But if they don't know what they don't know, then it's our job to kind of make them aware that there is, you know, keeping your scope of practice. You don't open people up and just throw them back out. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. And I have been um, the recipient of that, which is why my training now is all on safe facilitation and morals and ethics and stuff like that, because I think it's necessary. It's and, and many of us and even in different capacities, I remember even doing like workshops, full day events where it's like literally they would rip you open and then send you out. And it's like, wait, I don't understand what to do with this now. This is it just it just doesn't feel safe at all. Like it feels like we've just opened this up and then we walk out. And so I appreciate how you're doing this differently and how, and just how important the work is. I can't imagine what it was like to see Mastin Kip 15 years ago, like, and not even expecting to see him, right? You were not on fire. No, Mastin Kip, I was expecting to see, I wasn't expecting to see Tommy Rosen because nobody knew what kind of like Kundalini, these guys were just starting their career at that point in time. And, you know, they were, I ended up going on a retreat to Hawaii with Mastin Kip and, you know, he, he, uh, he, he had a group of 30 people and he took it by application only. And I, 
I thought I got in, but you know what? It because he wanted to make sure he had like-minded individuals who were really part of this journey, and he was no different then. You know, like his work is very aligned with mine. Always has been. He talks about you know trauma. Um, he trains trauma um, professionals, but you know his fire was still the same back then as it is wow. now, right? So I've always liked him. I think he's a smart guy. I've loved listening to him. I've loved his books and I've loved listening to him. He's a podcast that I do go back to. And I just, I just find him, I love how he has a way of explaining and um, just breaking it down. So absolutely love him. I want to know, I have a couple quick questions for you, but where's the best place for people to connect with you to follow, learn more? So if you want to, connect with me, you can email info at the recovery mm-hmm. And also my website, recovery follow me at naturally high. And that should be able to connect you with me. That's awesome. I'll make sure all of your information is in the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. Another question, what lesson in life are you most grateful for? That's an interesting question. I think I'm most grateful for recognizing that my pain and my earth curriculum happen in duality. Like there's pleasure and pain in everything in life. They're not, it's not either or it's happens together. And that I've learned how to navigate that. Um, yeah, that's such an interesting question. I've never been asked that before, but I think that's it. I think that I, I chose to, I chose to answer the call mm-hmm. because it probably as, you know, I was a feisty, feisty young girl, <laughs> totally rebellious, <laughs> very spirited, feisty as hell. So, yeah. you know, I chose to answer that call, but I feel like that I did it because I love somebody better than myself, which was my children and they deserve better. Mm-hmm. And I could clearly see how this was going to play out if I didn't choose differently. But I think the lesson is that life is you know, happens in duality. It happens in a very polarized manner. We have plain and pleasure at the same time. It's not either or. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, my big takeaway in life. I have to say, I, I think that just actually left me speechless because I love what you said, how pain and like your earth curriculum happened in duality. As humans, so many times when we feel pain, we want to go the other way. And we, or we don't want to feel it. We just want to put it away, pack it away, do whatever we have to do, numb it out, not, not feel it. And that we're always searching for pleasure as if they're on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Well, I tried all- the first one for a long time. Let's be yeah. honest, right? Oh I no, I know. Trust me. I know. Runner. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, as I said, the common denominator was me. <laughs> so mm-hmm. therefore I had to sort of, okay, you're back here again. What are you going to do different girl? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I just, I love that explanation. And I, this, the, there was the second point when a therapist said to me, like, maybe, cause I said, I can't find solutions anywhere. I'm looking everywhere. There's nothing available. Nobody's talking, blah, blah, blah. And she looked and she's like, well, maybe that's cause you're supposed to. And I was like, what? Like Why? I still to this day was like, do you think so? I don't think so. And then all of a sudden became this wait, I can actually do something good with my pain. 
that became a turning point that it felt like there was now purpose instead of resenting everything that was happening. And it was a shift, a small, a small perspective shift, but a massive perspective shift at the same time. And I love how you just explained how they both really can coincide at the same time. I believe so. I, I think when we're in pain, we live in very absolute black and white worlds. So yes. it's either or, mm-hmm. and we don't find that there can be an end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am sad, but I can still feel hopeful. Mm-hmm. Both. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. This has been such a great conversation. Honestly, I'm so grateful that we connected. I have one last quick question for you. Everything that I we talk about in the show and the people that I get to have conversations with is really about how life changes when they learn how to like own their story, share their story, stand on their story not feed the shame. Can you imagine where your life would be if you didn't follow the path that you're on right now? And how would it look different? Mm-hmm. It'd be mm-hmm. very destructive. Um, the person I'd be hurting myself, the person who I'd be hurting most would be myself for sure, because I would protect people I love first, but it would ricochet over to them. There's no question. Um, and they wouldn't be able to learn differently. Like there's nothing that I'm more proud of is the second generation, which is my children. And now the chance to create a beautiful new slate with my grandson, like that is my legacy. Um, and it, it didn't always look like that. It was messy before it became that right. Obviously, you know, yeah. we don't always get the finished product the way we like. <laughs> Not the first try. To that product. So yeah, that is, that's probably the most thing that I'm most proud of, but yeah. And for that reason, um, cause I, I don't know what it would be like. It wouldn't be pretty. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I honestly, thank you so much for your time, energy, expertise, sharing your story with us, being vulnerable. And I know that especially at a time like now that this is going to land exactly where it needs to land. So I thank you so much for being here. And I thank you. Thank you so much, Marsha. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. If you love this episode, please submit a rating and review on iTunes and please share it with someone you think could benefit from hearing this message or this podcast. I love connecting and meeting you. So please screenshot the episode and tag me on social media or Instagram stories at Marsha Van W. And until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.